Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today we'll get a preview of the Trenton mayoral race set for next month. The upcoming elections really do promise to bring some change to the city. Lots of new council members are running. WBGO's John Kalish reports on why students of color at several institutions are objecting to historical murals. There are four controversial murals, all of them by left-leaning artists. I'll chat with New York Choral Society's music director, David Hayes, about the upcoming Duke Ellington Sacred Concerts at the New School College of Performing Arts. The chorus is called upon to do all kinds of different things, and I thought, you know, wow, this is really interesting. And film critic Harlan Jacobson takes us to the New York Film Festival. Until 14-year-old Jalen Hall plays 14-year-old Emmett Till as a lamb led to slaughter, but it's not the slaughter that captures Chukwu's story, it's the aftermath. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. New Jersey's capital city of Trenton is holding its municipal election next month alongside this year's congressional midterms. All eyes are on the mayor's race, where incumbent Reed Gussiora is running for re-election against three challengers, two of whom who have been foes of Gussiora on the city council. WBGO's Kenneth Burns has this overview. Trenton City government has been described by some as the most dysfunctional municipal government in the entire Garden State. Mayor Reed Gussiora says he has not seen anything like it. Whatever I propose, they say no. Fights between Gussiora and the council have captured local headlines throughout the years. Some of the more notable ones include a rejected plan from a fiber optics company to redevelop a historic Roebling factory that left the CEO vowing to do business elsewhere. Intense disagreement over the operation of the Trenton Waterworks, which just attracted oversight from the state over chronic issues, and outright budget disagreements that resulted in bills being paid through either executive order or a state directive. Trenton is an excellent example of what you don't do to manage city problems. That's Daniel Bowen, an associate political science professor at the College of New Jersey. Residents of Trenton are very much embarrassed by the council and the state of Trenton city government. Audio from a May 2020 conference call obtained by media at the time is one of the more infamous examples of how official meetings could sometimes devolve into screaming matches and personal insults. You don't even know who they are, Mayor. You're a child. You're a child. Oh, oh, I'm a child? You're a child. Councilwoman Robin Vaughn and Gussiora were going back and forth over the role nonprofits play in the city. The topic of the call was the city's response to the pandemic. Later, Vaughn took a personal shot at Gussiora, Trenton's first openly gay mayor. You're an idiot. Vaughn, who represents the city's West Ward, is one of Gussiora's challengers for re-election. Her campaign did not respond to interview requests, but she briefly discussed that call with NJ Spotlight News in August. I moved on from it. I, I barely recall it. City Council President Kathy McBride is also challenging Gussiora for the top job. She says criticism of Trenton's municipal government being dysfunctional is a racist and sexist attack on her leadership. A black female is one of the most unprotected, unrespected humans in this nation. And if it had have been any other person sitting in the seat that I am sitting in, 
it would not be so. McBride adds the council is doing its job serving as a check and balance on the mayor's power. She says if they saw something that they didn't like based on the law, they challenged Gussiora. If most of the times when you get a council and a mayor that agrees lockstep with everything, somebody is rubber stamping something along the way. So there's no rubber stamps on this council. This is McBride's second stint on the city council and also her second time running for mayor. Prior to entering the arena, she got involved in the community three decades ago after her only son was killed by a gun violence while visiting home from Delaware State, starting the group Mothers Against Violence. Gussiora, who is white, also says race is not a factor in his criticism against her. Race should have nothing to do with this and just the best person should be the one to, to run the city. If re-elected, Gussiora says he wants to continue focusing on economic development. We need to have jobs in the city. We need to take care of those abandoned factories on the Roebling Block 2. We need to continue renovations of our centers and we need to continue the economic stabilization that, that I've brought to the city. A fourth candidate, Cherie Garrett, is not on the city council. She's commissioner with the Trenton Housing Authority. She blames the mayor and the current city council for the constant bickering, saying it accomplishes nothing for Trentonians. They don't realize you represent us. You represent the constituents. So, you know, you're affecting all of us. We Look at the freaking city. We're suffering here. Garrett adds Gussiora is a politician, which Trenton does not need more of, and says McBride was not prepared for the job that she currently has, including political attacks. She's black. I'm black. You know when you ran in there, you're going to deal with that situation. So you should have been ahead of it. Garrett works as a fiscal analyst with the state by day. She wants to lean on her business background to revitalize Trenton, claiming a revamp is needed to attract companies to the city. Professor Bowman says the opportunity of a clean slate for the Trenton government is attractive after four years of embarrassing headlines. The upcoming elections really do promise to bring some change to the city. Lots of new council members are running and many of these seats are promising to change hands. Only one council incumbent is running for re-election. Bowen adds that one way or the other, change is coming to Trenton. For the WBGO Journal, I'm Kenneth Burns in Trenton. Students of color at several educational institutions have objected to historical murals and have called for their removal or destruction. A court case involving a high school ended recently, but litigation over murals at a university and a law school is pending. WBGO's John Kalish has the story. There are four controversial murals, all of them by left-leaning artists. The mural in George Washington High School in San Francisco includes the life-size image of a dead Native American. I'm a licensed psychologist. The trauma is real. Why don't you believe the trauma is real? Answer the question. Get the hell out of here. You came to disrupt. The San Francisco mural has been the subject of a bitter dispute. The city's Board of Education voted to cover the mural and later reversed itself. This is all chronicled in a new documentary titled Town Destroyer. Deborah Kaufman is the film's co-director. You know, the intent of the artist matters to some degree, but it's the impact on the audience that matters just as much, if not more. In the documentary, Jessica Young, a scholar who focuses on the literature of genocide, says the images in these controversial murals can be traumatizing over time. The definition of trauma is that it is a repetition 
sometimes the outright repetition of the violent event itself. Sometimes it's the way that we see something happening again and again in our mind's eye. It can seem like I'm just walking into a building, but it's the accumulation of these things that can, I think, over time lead to traumatization. Cumulatively, they can lead to real harm. Supporters of the mural say artist Victor Arnatoff was critiquing American history. Among them are the actor Danny Glover and the Bay Area artist Dewey Crumpler, who was commissioned to paint a response to it. All murals exist to teach. They exist to speak about history. And history is full of discomfort. Arnatoff attempted to give us the clarity of our history as all great works should do. In Vermont, a mural about the Underground Railroad was covered after law students complained that it portrays African Americans as racist caricatures. Vermont Law School Dean Beth McCormick says the mural is an affront to the school's commitment to diversity. Forcing us to display artwork, which courts have interpreted as speech that is against our values, violates the First Amendment and that it compels speech. Even though speech is protected under the First Amendment, it also protects our right not to give a message that is inconsistent with our values. The mural in Vermont has been up for nearly 30 years. Here's artist Sam Kirsten. People ought to say what they think about public art. That's the idea. Now, for an institution to say, well, we're going to whitewash this black history, you know, that's something else. But for people to say, I don't like this, I think that's perfectly reasonable. A federal judge in Vermont has ruled that the law school does have the right to cover Kirsten's mural, but lawyers for the artist have appealed the ruling. Black students at the University of Kentucky protested against a fresco that depicts four slaves bent over in a tobacco field. Days after the murder of George Floyd, the university announced it would remove the mural. But Karen Olivier, the artist who was commissioned to create a response to the fresco, says if that happens, she wants her artwork taken down. I understood the impetus, but I think in that act... You've rendered my work blind and mute. It can't exist without the artwork it was created to confront. I think in one fell swoop, you've censored me as well. African-American college students in Indiana have also deemed images of the Ku Klux Klan in a campus mural to be offensive, even though the Klan is portrayed critically. We're at a period where any Klan imagery whatsoever is considered offensive. Art history professor Henry Adams says when Thomas Hart Benton included hooded Klan members and a cross burning in his mural on the history of Indiana, it was an obvious tribute to the Indiana newspaper that exposed the Klan's control of state government. Still, students at Indiana University objected to the images, and the lecture hall where the offending panel is located is no longer used. I think Benton showed a lot of courage in introducing a significant part of Indiana history. He was basically saying that history isn't nice and we should look around us and talk about that. I think it's a warning. It's a warning to us today. Democracy is always very vulnerable. These controversial murals are a teachable moment for Amna Khaled, a history professor at Carleton College in Minnesota. She urges students to consider the context of these artworks. 
These were artists who were critiquing the state of American history as was being taught in textbooks. I mean, nothing is more subversive than that. And the fact that there is this movement to completely obliterate context, to not pay attention to the artist, to the moment it was produced in, is tragic for me. And as a historian, it's doubly tragic for me. It pains me. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. Duke Ellington's sacred concerts will return to the stage in New York City for the first time in 35 years on November 18th and 19th at the Tishman Auditorium at the new School College of Performing Arts. While it's said to be Ellington's favorite and most meaningful work, it's not performed often due to its magnitude, and the evening will combine elements of jazz, classical music, choral music, spiritual, gospel, blues, visual art and dance. What an undertaking. And joining us to talk about this ambitious program that is free to the public is David Hayes, the music director of the New York Choral Society. David, great to see you and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Great to see you. Well, as I mentioned, this is quite an endeavor and the New York Choral Society is presenting this amazing program in partnership with the New School College of Performing Arts and You're going to be welcoming acclaimed jazz vocalist Brianna Thomas, baritone and composer Milton Suggs, painter James Little, whose work was on display at the Whitney Biennial in 2022, Broadway performer Daniel J. Watts, and most recently, you saw him in Hamilton and Tina, the Tina Turner musical, Mm -hmm. and the New School Studio Orchestra, and of course, the New York Choral Society, which you are in charge of. Yep. I guess the first question is, since most people don't do this, why did you decide it was you know, important that you needed to do this now? It, it was a product of a long sort of pandemic think that we had been doing in terms of reevaluating our repertory and reevaluating our sense of the kinds of composers we were including on our programming and sort of realizing that, that we needed to set a much bigger table Um, And that we were particularly coming out of the summer of 2020 with the George Floyd killing and Black Lives Matter protests and everything and and just rethinking everything because I mean it caused caused so many of us to rethink what we were doing. Um, And uh, I was actively at that time trying to spend as much rehearse, uh, research time as I could about, you know, repertory from composers that I, I was not even aware of were existing. I just sort of did a deep dive into particularly African-American composers and, um, you know, Asian-American composers as well, but particularly African-American composers. And, and I was looking to try and, as we were moving forward and thinking about at some point coming out of pandemic life, um, you know, what, what would our programming look like moving forward? And I, I ran across a really cryptic reference to Ellington's sacred concerts. And I sort of, I don't even know that I really peripherally knew where, what they were and where they, you know, Ellington, sure, of course, I understand. But it, it, the, the kind of the, the breadth of his accomplishments as a composer um, really were, were not aware. I was not aware of that. And so I, I sort of, thought, well, that's really interesting, but I mean, what do these pieces look like and what are they? So I, I, I began poking around and I discovered, first of all, there are three sacred concerts from three different collections of performances that he did 
the first one was commissioned in 1965, I think, from Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. Um, and then he did a couple of years later, he did the second one. And then the third one comes from, um, I think, the very early 70s, very shortly before he passed away. Um, and these were, in, in some ways, as I discovered them, um, and I, I did find actually some scores and, of course, recordings. He recorded all of this stuff. Um, and started listening to it and realizing it was like, you know, wow, this is really some amazing, uh, you know, just just a breadth of writing in the course of all of these things. It's got solo stuff. It's got a tap dance concerto. It's got a, you know, it's got choral music, but it's choral music from acapella choral music to backup singing to unison to spoken rhythmic stuff. And the chorus is called upon to do all kinds of different things. And I thought, you know, wow, this is really interesting. And I, I had known... Uh, I also found reference that, you know, one of my colleagues on the West Coast, Grant Gershon with Los Angeles Master Chorale, had done several performances of these over the over the years. And in fact, they're doing it in May. Um, so Grant's returned to these pieces often. Um, and another colleague, Thomas Lloyd, down in Philadelphia, had written a huge extensive article on the pieces and basically said, um, uh, I, I believe it was for um, the Choral Journal, which is the ACDA's journal um, basically said, why are choruses not doing these pieces? This is ridiculous. Um, and people don't know about them and they should know about them. And, you know, you really need to pay attention to this music. So I, I sort of looked at it and I thought, I, I think this is intensely interesting. I mean, the, the, the writing is spectacular. I mean, obviously, you know, one of our greatest composers, and I, and I don't just even say jazz composers, this is one of our greatest composers in the United States. Uh, in the course of the 20th century, I mean, right up there with Copeland and all, all of the rest of them. Um, and once I decided that we should do it, um, I realized that we needed to, um, first of all, we needed to kind of compact it, <laughs> since there are three full concerts. Um, we, we needed to, you either have a choice with it, you either sort of replicate one of the concerts as it existed when, when Ellington created it, or you you take what is you know blithely called the best of you take selections from each of them and pull them together in one performance and that's that's what we did and then it struck me is that you know i i work at new school i'm music director of the manis orchestra and it's part of the college of performing arts at manis manis is the classical conservatory there's the jazz and contemporary school and then there's the school of drama that's the three schools in the college of performing arts and i realized that you know my <laughs> very good colleague who keller coker who is the dean of jazz and contemporary was was for years director of the american metropole orchestra in los angeles i, I mean i think for over a decade he was director of metro the american metropole orchestra and i thought wow you know we have this new school studio orchestra that's kind of a hybrid um you know it's it's between jazz and the manis school um so i approached Keller and I said, "What do you think? <laughs> you think you'd be interested in doing this together?" And he's like, "Oh my God, I love those pieces. Because nobody ever does them. We really should. Let's do them. Let's do them." Our executive director has a relationship with James Little, and he said, "You know, I think James's art would be really interesting." And Tishman happens to have the auditorium we're performing in. The back wall becomes a video screen. Um, it can either be just a wooden wall or it goes away and it becomes a video screen. And I thought, well, why why can't we be projecting something behind while we're doing this that reacts to the music? You know, not a video per se, but, you know, that the, 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 the imagery changes according to the what we're doing in any particular movement. And so he approached James and James was intensely interested in 
that um, and thought this was a great idea. And so we just have pulled all of these disparate elements together. It's a little terrifying, I might say. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. Because we're a month out and, and you know, I'm, I'm still trying to see how all the pieces kind of pull together and it's going to pull together fast. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not something it's a leisurely putting together process. It's going to come together really, really fast. But you're smiling because it is such a, a momentous occasion and, and you're really giving people a full experience. And I mentioned at the top that it is free and also on the 19th, it will be streamed live as well. So yeah. this is really for the world to see. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we we thought New School does stream most of its public concerts. Um, and I thought that since we were doing it there, I was like, well, wait a minute, you know what, why don't we just stream it too? I mean, we've got the equipment there, we've got everything there. You know, all we have to do is decide to do it. Um, so we we made that commitment that we were going to stream it as well. Um, you know, this this you know, it's not a huge auditorium. The seating in the auditorium is limited, and therefore we figured that the that the um, the the house itself would probably be quite full. And then there might be people that just you know for whatever reasons can't get there or are turned away or something. But we wanted to give them a chance to, um, I mean, turned away only because there's no seats left. Um, and we wanted to give people an option to sort of, um, you know, experience it at least through the course of the stream. I mean, you know, the stream is, it's not, you know, high fidelity auto, uh, audio, but it's it's good. Um, and it'll give you a sense of the piece. And, and it's just, I think it's so important to be, to really be thinking a lot about Ellington and some of the other composers of his era, but particularly Ellington. I, the more I learn about him, the more amazed I am. Tell us where people can go to find more information about Duke Ellington Sacred Concerts on the 18th and 19th of November. Uh, you can go directly to our website, which is www.nychoral, no E on the end, nychoral.org. Um, and there's a, it should be right there on the front page. You'll see the information. David, congratulations for putting this together. I know you said uh, you know you still got lots of work to do, but it's going to be special. And uh, don't forget that people will be able to stream the uh, November 19th version of the concert too. So you're celebrating Duke Ellington with the world and congratulations. And we wish you the best of luck with these concerts as well as the one at Geffen Hall later this year. Thanks, been delightful talking to you. You can see my entire interview with David Hayes of the New York Choral Society on the WBGO Facebook page. The 60th New York Film Festival, which ended this weekend, is a festival of festivals, calling of some of the top ones from around the world in 2022. Our film critic Harlan Jacobson looks to some top film titles that will be part of the cultural landscape for months to come that made their first stop in our area at the New York Film Festival. New York opened with White Noise by New Yorker Noah Baumbach, who's The Squid and the Whale, Margot at the Wedding, Francis Ha, written by his significant other Greta Gerwig, and Marriage Story, make Baumbach something of the spiritual heir of Woody Allen and the cringe investigations of New York behaviorism. White Noise had its world premiere at the resurgent Venice Film Festival, the world's first film festival begun in the 1930s and founded to counter American film dominance to this day. It was meant also to cast Mussolini's Italy as a fascist paragon of culture. Odd that we have come full circle from Mussolini 
to Bombax White Noise, based on Don DeLillo's 1985 novel that captures the onset of a total fascist-inspired meltdown set in suburban academic utopia. How very 2020s. Bombach does what Bombach does, turns loose Tony actors to play stereotypical New York families of millennials groping for the baseline of truth. Need I say that DeLillo was prescient? What's really at issue is whether Bombach is equal to the task. Adam Driver plays Jack Gladney, DeLillo's charismatic professor of doom, opposite Bombach's significant other and collaborator, Greta Gerwig, who plays Driver's wife, Babette. Bombach said after the New York Film Festival press screening of this Netflix film that the hyper-stylized woodblock dialogue was part of the design aesthetic to mimic the woodblock way we act. It's not David Mamet-style repetition exactly, just, well, I don't know, maybe it's just Adam Driver. I'm officially tired of Adam Driver's inability to act. It doesn't seem to matter what film. Driver reads his lines like the kid on the school PA system during homeroom shouting the schedule of polio vaccines as if putting polio on notice. They don't look scared in the Crown Victoria. Yeah, they're laughing. These guys aren't laughing. Where? In the country square. What does it matter what they're doing in other cars? I want to know how scared I should be. Fans of the DeLillo novel will want to stay for the credit sequence of Bombach's Sondheim-style musical finale that says, we will swallow anything as long as there's a shop right down the block to sell it to us. Ruben Oslin's Triangle of Sadness, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this past May, takes Baumbach's New York American social critique even further by launching us on a cruise ship of fools. The triangle of sadness, you see, is that section between your eyebrows and nose, which the fashion show casting director informs the auditioning runway models in the opening sequence, is where all the worry reveals itself. We're not having any of that in fashion, he says. And then does Drill Sergeant, ordering the shirtless lineup of male model hopefuls to snap back and forth between high-fashion pout and low-fashion smiley face. So, is this runway casting for a grumpy brand or a smiley brand? So it's a grumpy brand, yeah. Congratulations! Show me that Balenciaga look. Suddenly I'm dressed in something way less expensive. It's H&M! Yay! Balenciaga! And H&M! Balenciaga and H&M. It looks paid for the tickets. Not bad, huh? <laughs> the success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. It's always yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Oslin takes his pretty couple, Harris Dickinson and Charles B. Dean, the latter, who tragically died from an unspecified infection just eight weeks ago, and runs them first through some gender role arguments about who pays the bills, and thence, in career failure, onto a cruise ship that will test their will to survive. Woody Harrelson plays Captain Tom, drunk on wine and Karl Marx, in a cruise ship destined to turn the social order upside down on a deserted island. This is black comedy, which fans of Oastland have come to expect. His force majeure in 2014 about a ski avalanche was a black comedy of gender manners a la the classic Adam's Rib. 
and his The Square, for which Osland also won the Palme d'Or in 2017, savaged high society and the art world. Neon, which specializes in edgy film, is taking Triangle of Sadness out to a theater near you. It's a two-and-a-half-hour tour de force where cringing will register in your own Triangle of Sadness. Finally, Till, about the 1955 murder of the young Emmett Till. On a solo summer trip from Chicago to see family in Mississippi, had its world premiere at the New York Film Festival. Till is by Nigerian-American director, writer, Shinonya Chukwu, who won the top dramatic prize at Sundance for the artfully layered death penalty film Clemency in 2019. That starred Alfred Warder, you'll remember, as a tragic death row warden. In Till, 14-year-old Jalen Hall plays 14-year-old Emmett Till as a lamb led to slaughter. But it's not the slaughter that captures Chukwu's story, it's the aftermath. In Chukwu's telling, Mamie Till Mobley, played brilliantly by Danielle Deadweiler, can sense the vibration of what's about to befall her son and is unable to stop it. I got a letter today from Auntie Lizzie. She said, Bo's been working the fields. Oh. <laughs> I can't imagine. Oh, he just doesn't understand how different things are in Mississippi. Are you listening? Yes. Be small down there. Like this? Emmett never thought anything would happen to him. The mummy, Simmy! <laughs> he just wanted to go on vacation and have fun with his cousins. But if my son could just get his feet back onto the Chicago soil, he'd be one happy kid. I don't know why I said that. I want to talk to you about that boy. They've come for you. Chukwu sees the tragedy of black American life as ultimately coming home to rest on the black American woman's shoulders. It's the men who are cut down by white racism. It's the women who must transform themselves into racial justice warriors. Till is a tragic message movie where the message is the powerful medium. And I'm Harlan Jacobson. You can find out more about key fall films from New York and other festivals in Harlan's Web Extra Reviews on WBGO.org. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.